Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. We have a great group of WMFDP, FDP Global consultants today, and we're talking about generational differences. And so I'm going to invite all four of us to introduce ourselves and what generation we're from, if you want to say what year you were born, and what does it mean to be part of your generation? Just a little bit of an opening on that, those thoughts, and we're just make this an informal conversation and um, explore a lot of topics in about 45 minutes or so. So, and Michael Welp, I am a boomer, just turned 60 uh, this spring. So to me, that is, I don't know, part of a, I, I feel like I'm an older elder now, and my generation is starting to move, still clinging to leadership positions in organizations and also starting to let go. Mm. Um, and so... Who wants to jump in next? I'll well, no, let's back. do it in reverse age. Okay, do that. I was going to keep it patriarchal and then like in this linear fashion, but let's disrupt. Maria. <laughs> Go well, ahead. First. <laughs> <laughs> Go right. ahead. No, I'm kidding. Go, please. Oh, okay. So we're doing it from old, from youngest. I like from that. Youngest. Yeah. That would be me, everyone. Uh, hi, y'all. My name is Marie Martinez. I was uh, born in 92, so I'm a full-blown millennial. Um, And uh, when you asked us to think about Michael, what it means, Michael and Noah, what it means for us to be whatever generation we are, I was just thinking of the word redefine, redefinition. That's that's all I sit with uh, when I think about our generation is how are we just figuring things out differently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thanks. Mm. May. Um, hi, everybody. I'm May Rats, and hey. I'm a millennial. I was born in 88 and December of 88, to be specific. And I think for me, it's um, I think we've been like the over promisers, over deliverers uh, is kind of how I've been in my generation. <laughs> I Growing up with 9-11 and with the recession and um, seeing our parents go through a lot of things, I think has formed our generation in certain ways, especially as we now are in our 30s and have mortgages and have kids and are like in solidly in like the middle parts of our careers. Uh, that is for that is playing out to be true, is that we are constantly asking to learn things, which is where some misunderstandings come out. We can talk about that later, but for me, it's always been true to overpromise, overdeliver. Hmm. Thanks. Okay. Coming up in the third lane, no, this is the fourth lane. Um, I was born in seventy eight, 
Um, oh yeah, my name's Noah Prince, and I was born in 1978. <laughs> That's the year the horse, and <laughs> I'm 44 years old. And um, I think okay, I would say for me, this is fun. Like sometimes I don't think about this, sometimes I do. Right now, like this is helping me really think about this, and that means deep down. I feel very connected to my 1990s identities, a generation Xer. Like I feel like the 1990s were a pivotally culturally defining time on so many levels. I feel like we came out of, there's like this dissolution with our parents' sixties movement. There was a respect for it on one level and the counterculture aspects of it. And then this dissolution looking at kind of the, the wars in Iraq and kind of like the mm -hmm. stagnation of racial justice and a lot of gender and, um, LGBT issues coming out then and, and, and looking for places of identity. The environment was starting to be questioned, the economy and the fairness of the economy. So I feel like that generation was really, really pivotal for me. I don't feel like we were slackers, which is sometimes a um, stereotype put on it. But mm -hmm. I do feel like there's like a cynical wit, kind of a kind of an I idea of being a little bit of an isolationist at times, or at least an entrepreneur and independent, so to speak. And there's a lot that I, I continuously realize I like about that culture. And sometimes I realize I valued over, more over younger culture. So I have to also get out of my romanticization at times of my own youthful upbringing, see what I really value about it in my underpinnings, and then open up to new perspectives. I'm really excited about today's conversation too. You don't just like the '90s because the style is coming back. I mean, it's fun. I mean, from an arrogant level, yeah, I think y'all the cats are like my daughter wears Doc Martens and all types of stuff now, right? Like she has like a Biggie Smalls and Nirvana shirt and has no idea who these people are. I'm like, yeah, I got this T-shirt. I'm like, yeah, I saw them. That's cool. Like, yeah, I did the same with my parents. So I, I see my I see my daughters wearing bell bottoms. So I thought the '70s were coming back. Well, I think all generation, I think once you've gone through it, I think it stays back in permanent style, some aspect of it. So the 70, there's an aspect of it that's going to stay in style and so on and so forth. Sorry, yeah. get my voice in there a lot. Noah, hearing you talk about the 90s, uh, that like also really, I feel like the 90s was such a cultural, like iconic time. Yeah. For Yes. That's what and then hearing you talk about all of the other like societal aspects of your formation in the 90s, I kind of was as I was listening to you talk, I was like, dang, like y'all got like the best of the totally. world. But totally. You also experienced and like folded in this very real level of cynicism while you were experiencing all this privilege, which I think is something that generations in the past did not know how to balance, or at least it hadn't fully come up. How do you bask in the pri privilege of whatever's been handed to you while still understanding the reality of like what might be to come? And in that really, I feel like that cynicism, millennials just took that and ran with it. You know, like yeah. <laughs> we don't even know what to do if we're not applying a little level of cynicism. To <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> well, just your describe that was just like so eye opening for me as to like what I love about Gen Xers. And also what sometimes frustrates me about them too. Mm. And your nickname are Gen Wires because you ask why all the time. That's why <laughs> I called that. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's why all the boomers hated working with y'all because you just started asking questions all the time. Wait, wait Marie, I have a follow-up question for you and May and Michael tack on if you want. But you said that um, kind of basking the privilege handed to them. I almost had a different tact. I think the cynicism came out because there was a disillusion with the beloved society that the 60s was going to create and that politically and economically, actually, when you look at equity, it's getting more and more stretched out and the opportunities thinner for marginalized groups. So I think the cynicism came from a disenfranchisement. Did, do you see it slightly differently from that, from your angle? No, no, I totally agree with you. And I was thinking about it more in like big picture. And mm. really it was, I would say it was a perceived privilege, right? Because okay. inevitably the world came crashing down in the early 2000s and uh, things have just kind of been going downhill from there. Um, so I would say that y'all were right at the end of, of just you know, the last, what I have, have studied to be the last greatest time in our civilization. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Understood. Thank you for that. But also very hyper aware that as an individual, totally different starting points for different people. Thanks yeah. For right. It's like, what's the collective lived experience that you went through? Like you mentioned, 9-11, everybody has the challenger disaster for me. It's like everybody has like moments for me. I was, I don't know, six or eight when a person landed on the moon, Neil Armstrong. And, you know, that was kind of a, whoa, really? So, you know, I'm curious, what what do you feel like is true about your generation? Because there are stereotypes about every generation. And what do you feel like is like, some stereotype that's been placed on you that doesn't feel fair or accurate as, you know, what would you want others to know about your generation that actually is important or true and what is uh, sort of been myths that isn't helpful. May and Maria, you want to talk about Gen X? We don't know. I mean, millennials first. I think people sometimes feel like we're still children. Uh, um, I think I've, I've Mate, run don't into you have your own child now, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally child. Yeah. My own child came out of my body. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> and that part feels very confusing to me because it makes, it kind of gaslights me a little into thinking I'm a child into thinking that I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, yeah, but I think the part that, I mean, much like many, many of these stereotypes, I think the flip side I actually do identify with, which is like, we're always being told, well, you're trying to ask for, you're trying to ask for too much too fast, you know, like, mm-hmm. why don't you just pay your dues and then you'll get the thing. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's like, I want to learn as quickly as I possibly can. And I've heard that that's the way we move here. So let's mm-hmm. do that. Right. So I think there's the either side of it, right? Like I am, a, I am a kid in some of these situations and the flip side is like, let's make, let's find me a mentor. <laughs> like I, w- I'm great mentee. Let's like run alongside each other on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, or the one that we all need participation trophies. I'm like, is it what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. Cause I'd like to hear the argument against appreciating and valuing everyone for showing up when the world's on fire. So <laughs> I've heard like a very good argument against some of these stereotypes. Um, but it is funny when you run into some of them, like you're a kid. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. We're letting kids pay mortgages then because I'm out here doing my best. So but I, I don't know. Um, those are the three that I run into the most that were participation mm-hmm. trophy wanters and mm-hmm. kids. And we want too much too fast. 
Mm-hmm. What you think? It's funny, Maria? May. You know, I don't personally uh, have a mortgage to pay because I'm too busy making myself <laughs> auto toast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I could not help myself from just. I read one more article about. I just don't even understand how avocados got looped into all of this. Man, they got so looped into it. And like millennials paying eighteen dollars for avocado toast. I'm like, what millennial? Which, that's not our fault. We do pay wow. eighteen dollars okay. for avocado toast, but that's because of inflation. And we control that. Someone else made that price. <laughs> Exactly. Like we're just yeah. trying to get our uh, protein in. And okay. our <laughs> so there was the assumption that the, that you will pay that and the rest of us won't. No, yeah. I think the assumption is that we don't know how to prioritize right. or yeah. place too much value on externally elitist, uh, you know, objects like avocado toast, you know, or like designer bags or like our appearances or like the latest mod, like fashion, um, or the post of babies and houses and some of these traditional pathos that either are restricted access to or people maybe in the past women haven't had the availability to develop and who they want to develop into in society or whatever. Well, I think this kind of goes to May's what May was saying is like, my biggest problem is why can't I just spend all my money on? Avocado? Yeah. Post. Like, just let me live. And that, <laughs> live. Just let me live. And if that's in debt, let it be in debt. Like, I don't understand what your problem is with that. Yeah. Which is is kind of what a, a frustration that I generally feel is like, why do you have a problem? And if you can't vocalize how it impacts you, then let's try to regroup here. And that moment of like regrouping. It is is hard. It's a hard conversation for me to have as a generation that has had to naturally regroup. Y'all, we graduated college, didn't have jobs, then we did have a job and had to regroup our finances to pay the debt. That's outstanding to date. You know, mm-hmm. then on top of that, we regroup, organize our finances, and then we start to have families and can't even really get stable there. And then it continues because we haven't seen the effects of of what the economy and in a society that's so kind of corrupt and entrenched in archaic power structures, the effect that that will have on your daughter may Mm -hmm. their financial stability and their ability to educate themselves and be the next productive members of society. Mm -hmm. And that to me is something that I'm always thinking about, even though I don't have children, you know, how do I impact the next people that are coming up? And and Mm -hmm. that's a big difference that I haven't felt um, Mm -hmm. oftentimes. And uh, I'm not saying it's a unilateral experience, but for me, it's, I don't always see that in my partnerships with older generations. It's more so, like you said, Noah, I'm pulling back. I'm a little bit more of an individual. Everyone's doing well. So I can sit in that space, mm-hmm. but I don't, mm-hmm. I haven't seen that transition yet from the leaders that I've experienced with all the time. Not, not, I mean, not all the time, only sometimes, but it is, it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a, as a, a father of two Gen Z, um, two daughters in their twenties, isn't that Gen Z? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. like I watch them come out of high school and do some college, and it's like watching in the last few years, um, you know, rents go crazy over the rooftop, housing costs crazy. There's no way I could have afforded to buy a house in the same. It's like it's a whole different world for a lot of. In this case, you know it all varies based on class level, but it's like, there's, there's, I had it easy thinking back as a boomer growing up. I, st- I was able to, you know, start at $150 as an intern a month, plus room and board, 
at an outward bound school and know that I could fall back and find, I had some benefit from knowing I had parental backup too, and I didn't have college debt. And so I had an, a lot different starting point than what you both are talking about with debt yeah. or challenge or costs today. Yeah. I think I read a statistic lately and again, we can, we can do more research if you want to quote this, but this is the first generation in history that is ever experiencing worse financial and societal gain than their parents. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I remember being told, I was born in Mexico, you know, I work hard so your life can be better than mine. That's right. the message I was always sent as an immigrant, especially mm-hmm. to this country, right, as we ascend to the American dream. And I'm, I'm experiencing that, but I don't know if my children will. Mm-hmm. And that scares me that actually dictates some of the decisions I make in my life or don't mm-hmm. make case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to add one more to that is that I, I often hear millennials and Gen Zers being, um, be, being stereotyped as flighty, mm-hmm. um, especially in their careers and that they only stay for a certain amount of time. They're looking for this perfect job. They're looking for like the greatest thing ever, these nap pods or whatever, the certain amount of pay. Um, and one of our colleagues, Mo Carrick, has done all this research, and it's looking like millennials and Gen Zers are going to have 13 career changes inside of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I've only had three, yeah, which so means far. I got to get a hustle on my changes. But that's like, um, but I think that is all due to this economic situation. It's like if we're not promised Social Security, if we're not promised to even get out of debt, then what's wrong with looking for a job that helps us thrive? what's wrong with finding a job that makes us happy, you know, cause if we're going to stay there forever and it's not going to pay out, what's why are we doing that? Yeah. Hmm. Well, and I don't know if you what you saw your parents try to be loyal to a particular organization and a lot of generations watch their parents get laid off. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, how did that work out for you? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. why should I be loyal to a company that where there isn't the same, you know, Mm-hmm. used to call it golden handcuffs. You were there for life. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. so you have to be more loyal to your career than to an organization in particular, perhaps. Or a paycheck than a mission. Like I watched my mom, uh, they're both first generation. And I watched my mom go from being a community college ESL teacher to starting going back to college and getting her degree and becoming a therapist. But she, she didn't make more than like $9,000 a year. It was like in the nineties and she was working with women that were escaping abusive relationships that didn't have resources. And so part of that was like, well, damn, you can't necessarily like, cause I went down a social justice and career path for a long time. And part of it was like this cynicism at the economic system. Like, Oh, you can't really, it's like, it's this false dichotomy. It's like either choose profit or choose people. And so I definitely saw my parents sixties idealism. I saw how that did impact them. And my mom, you know, as a result of that really worked part-time and that privilege was that my sister and I got to see her um, a lot more than a lot of my nineties friends who are latchkey kids. It didn't mean we had economic anything associated with that. We had assistance at times, but my mom was, um, my mom was able to have somewhat of a presence and my dad, same thing. He worked in the, like a, a public education sphere forever. And I watched it like I, I surpassed his salary. I think when I was his salary, he retired at, mm-hmm. um, well, wow. when I was like 38 years old, 
And that was not a lot of money when I was making it 38 years old. Mm -hmm. So I was like, dang, these people raised two kids on that. And like, I don't know, there's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of appreciation for kind of what you said, Michael, some of the opportunity was there, but then a lot of appreciation for some of my parents' values. And then looking at some of the pivot moves I made of like, well, I want to pass down some economic resources to my daughter. So just a lot of torn conflicts in there too, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, no, you, what do you hear? Oh, sorry, Michael. No, what do you hear about your generation? Mm. What do I? Um, the slackers definitely. Like, there was even a movie called Slackers and stuff like that in the '90s. I think that was like our like the '60s was tune in, drop out, or something like that. And I think '90s were supposed to be kind of slacker, kind of skater, grunged out dudes, which I I totally affiliate with that music. I love that music. Um, <laughs> I think grunge music challenged the patriarchy of what we called cock rock from the 80s and this like grand like male toxicity that's coming back into male pop culture now. But um, but uh, yeah, there was a slacker thing attitude. I do think like I do think like I, I value the independent and DIY like doing it yourself. Like sometimes that can become a bit like rugged individualism, what, like, what we teach about white male culture, but another side to it, it can be really detached from like kind of what we saw as kind of the corporate approach only to life and more of like, let's have a community centered approach and let's create these resources and distribute them ourselves and have more equity in how we do that. So I really do appreciate that ethos to it. Um, but yeah, there, there can be a slacker thing. Honestly, I thought, you know, maybe shoot, Michael, you opened the door and I appreciate it. Both in our organization, other organizations I worked in, I, I thought by 45, I would get the baton passed to me at some point by now. And I feel like that did happen to baby boomers. And I just feel like the proverbial baton never got passed. So I'm still in that DIY, like, how do I make it? How do I create it mentality? Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's some of the things that play out for my for my lived yeah. experience in my generation. <clears throat> well, and I I also have read recently that as boomers have delayed our retirement, it's blocking your all career flows, and it's like we're holding on to key roles, key positions, key incomes, and you're like waiting, you know, waiting on in the waiting room for some of that. Yeah, how, how does that like land on you? How does that when you read? articles like this what do you feel as a as a boomer do you Ooh, good question yeah I, I feel um sad because i can think about you all and i think about my daughters and i think about you know it's like and what what the heck are we doing um working our brains out when we need to chill and slow down some of it we we don't so a lot of people don't have the choice they're they've 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 either spent a lot or they haven't saved enough or they've watched healthcare or something wipe out their savings or other things and so they're forced into that kind of a extended thing there are some of uh folks that don't know how to find to let go of the purpose so much of people's value comes from work yeah. particularly white men and a lot of others too it's like that's that's the meaning for some too um so um it brings up a lot of stuff for me maria it's just like I had, you know, working in our office cross-generational, I, I had to really think about a real conversation some of us had last week and how am I thinking about generational differences and am I like guarding, somehow I'm guarding the, the some way of doing things that, how do I do it? How do I shift my thinking so that we're synergistic? Hmm. And I came up with a new process for project that we're working on that actually, you know, frees up some other colleagues that are younger generation to go after things and feel like they have the authority to do that instead of waiting like everything has to be approved by 
me because I'm the old guard kind of a thing. How do I think about things differently? So I, I think Maria is like, how do I create more room to get out of the way and, um, you know, have that, have that transition take place? And it's a learning journey. Mm. One thing I'm really tender to there, Michael, that you just shared is that our country is not very good at dealing with its elderly. Um, We're not very good at passing batons Mm -hmm. and then remembering our elders. It's not in our ethos. It's not in our culture. And, um, and we have an epidemic of loneliness, especially around white men. Mm -hmm. So if I can imagine if I'm a white man and I'm nearing the end of my career, Mm -hmm. it's less about the work and it's more about loneliness looming Mm -hmm. ahead of me. And I don't think I would leave either. You know, I'm not saying that's your reason, but I'm saying like, if I'm with colleagues Mm -hmm. that are stimulating my brain and I'm like with them and I have a purpose in it and I know that actually I've seen the greatest generation above me, right. That's like get discarded. Mm -hmm. No way am I going over there. (laughs) So like, no wonder, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel some tenderness there that we're like, okay, now the clubhouse is ours. So goodbye. I didn't always have that tenderness, but I feel that so much in the past couple of years. Like, man, I think that's really, yeah, I think you have to look at both ends of that. I think you have to look at how we dispose of our, of our, our, a, our seasoned people and, and, and how we block our youngest people and we create, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Well, there's a lot of research around what we do with our like older women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they, we just invisibilize them, especially yeah. when they are like right in their prime thinking years, which is right around menopause when all those hormones drop and they're just like amazing, they mm-hmm. can crush people, you know, and yeah. we're like, goodbye. Mm-hmm. We're not even utilizing them, that's you know, sweet. and yeah. how lonely that must feel. Mm-hmm. Well, and the stereotype is, you know, I might, as a white guy have gray hair. So all of a sudden I'm listening to more it's it can be a positive assumption that i've got some wisdom and then but then others are like oh he's past his prime he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't even know how to use google docs or yeah. um yeah you, you oh, couldn't I even wonder, try like... a snapchat with two hours of coaching <laughs> <laughs> but you know different cultures have different values as you said you know somebody mentioned about the intersectionality of generations so mm-hmm. well, some asian cultures and others really value elderly and it's like a core native american some parts of them as a spiritual teachers guides and you know looking to so all of this intersects a lot of different uh cultural dimensions as well maybe for you all in your lives too absolutely yeah i'd love Marie, i'd love to you know you're mentioning um being born in Mexico, like, and I, I have a cultural, uh, Michael, like you feeling, and I don't know if it's based on stereotype or I think it's based on my, some informed relationship, but definitely that I have an uh, assumption that Asian cultures in particular are more intergenerationally um, connected than like the West. Maria, is there any thought on like Latinx culture and your experience with it? And and I'm not asking you to speak for Mexico or Latinx culture, but your experience (laughs) growing up in that Mm -hmm. from your angle. Oh, man, we could do a whole podcast episode unpacking this (laughs) Uh, because I have been (laughs) tossing back and forth with this subject, actually. How how tied are we to our ancestors? How much, if anything, do we owe them Mm -hmm. Um, and how much, if anything at all, do they dictate the way we move in the future? Yeah. Uh, 
I think that for, for my community, and you know what, let me just narrow it down even more. For my family specifically, uh, traditional Latin, uh, I call it culturally Catholic because we don't practice. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, culturally, culturally Catholic, <laughs> culturally Christian. Um, you know, that's been hard. And, and it's interesting, some, some commonalities that I can make with, for example, workplace culture is that it seems like this pressure to perform for your elders is only on the younger folks. It is not... Yeah. Um, it's not something that's reciprocal. So oftentimes I hear, you know, I need this, or I ask my elders, what do you need from me? Mm-hmm. But I very rarely get asked, what do you need mm-hmm. from us? Mm-hmm. How can we help you? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel, I feel yeah. that lacking um, in a lot of my relationships with older folks is a constant, just feeling like they want, want, want from me. And uh, I'm actually, maybe I'm not giving them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe if I asked, they would mm. deliver, but I'm too afraid to ask uh, because of this constant back and forth mm. of, are you not capable? Will you see me as young? Mm. That is a constant loop. And it definitely messes. I won't say the other word that I love to say. It, say mess- it. <laughs> it fucks with my head, y'all. That could just set every day on this podcast. Sorry, back to you. Maria. <laughs> yeah, it's a massive brain fuck to be transparent yeah. with you because some of the best workplace partnerships that I have are intergenerational. They're between Noah and I, they're between you and I, Michael. Some of the people that teach me the most are 20, 30 years older than me, Amalia, some of my other mentors, Mm -hmm. other practitioners in this work and uh, getting to the place where I wasn't nervous to ask took me way more time than it should have. Mm -hmm. And it took them way more work to get me there than it should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see a world where we all just were really transparent about our needs, whether that's information, subject area, technology, uh, partnership, mm-hmm. social, you know, maybe I just don't know how to act right. And I need a little bit of help. That's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's just, you know, that I feel would, would help us just speak the same language a little bit more because I love my mentors across generation. And I don't know what kind of woman I would be today. You, you, Michael and Noah have seen my struggles with feeling confident in my work. Um, and it's because of people who are older than me that I've gotten to this place. So I, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to be more divided. I want to find ways to make older generations feel more valued because I value them so much. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. The conversations, mm-hmm. I can't imagine Mo what it or may, what it must be like to work with Mo every day. Mm-hmm. Wild. You know, mm-hmm. I want to see more of that instead of he's like we pigeonhole each other for no reason. Mm-hmm. So one thing I heard in you, Maria, is there can be a tendency from some older folks to not ask what you need, but that the examples you gave over and over were actually people using inquiry and saying, what, how can I help you? What do you need? How do you what does support look like across yeah. generation? Well, and also generational, if I heard you in addition, generational this conversation kind of informing how we might look at equity and that an indicator of an equitable workplace is people are comfortable asking for whatever that is because that judgment on their outsiderness or marginalization is not amplified by them asking that question. And rather that's seen as a chance for insiders to do an inclusion work and move the work forward. So I thought that was really helpful too. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I'm curious, I'm going to pivot us just like a tiny bit. 
Um, and Michael, you like edit the podcast and stuff, right? You don't like just do one. You already know F is coming out. I know, right? Only, no, only, if, only if you say something horrific. I know we have a couple of questions, but something that has been coming up a lot, y'all, and I think we should talk about it. Um, I'm curious to know, because I, I live in a millennial echo chamber. <laughs> um, right. Like my TikTok, the moment I turn my laptop off, it's like millennial land, my TikTok, my Instagram, everything, my siblings, my friends. But uh, I'm curious to know, Michael and Noah, how you feel about a topic that millennials have essentially mastered, ooh. the silent quitting. The what? Silent quitting. You want to say what that is for people who don't know? <laughs> I'm like, the what? <laughs> I, I, I only saw it the first time a few days ago. In an let me, in let room me Google that real quick while Michael takes a stab. <laughs> we don't even have to talk about it. But, May, you've heard of this, have yeah. you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, you know better than I know? Good. Have y'all talked about it on the on, – uh, Making I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Okay, so silent quitting, and this is this is new a new terminology that's come up in on TikTok, which has apparently become my source of truth now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> silent quitting is the idea that you essentially just do what you're paid to do, and okay. supervisors see it as you kind of disengaging, okay. which is where the term silent quitting comes from. Where in reality, you're just only doing what your job description says you should be doing, aka working what you should be paid to work. And it's having this like your job description. Right. It's having a strange moment in uh, workplace culture right now. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's curious. I'm curious about sort of what's behind the silent quitting because it could be, you know, some people have philosophies of I work to live or I live to work. It's like, you know, uh, I work, you know, my co-founder Bill says I was born in the house of work. You know, I love to, you know, and am I, am I, am I actually setting healthy boundaries for my limits so that I can actually have a sustainable life? Um, Am I being passive aggressive because I don't like the workplace and it's not helpful for me. So I'm going to just do the minimal that I can to get by. Um, And, you know, am I actually wanting something that isn't being offered to me as part of the exchange, some more growth or some more connection that would actually have me want to do more than the minimal or whatever. Yeah. Uh, So to me, it's all, it could be, you know, a bunch of things and I'm curious what's behind it for different people and maybe different things for different people or yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I think I'm similar with you. I mean, my, my intuitive feeling is that it sounds like an act of resistance against, um, against just to- toxic reality. And, and, and cause, because the thing is right. I, I think there's two sides to it. If, if, if it's a part of a movement to not replicate maybe the white male cap or capital cult rat race of the past, where it's, my only identity is forged in work. And I feel that when I engage with work, that's how I'm forced to do it. So I'm drawing a hardcore boundary. But even that feels like it takes an effort to, on some level to rebel in that way. So I would hope for more liberation somehow on, in, in the outcomes anyway. Although, yeah, it sounds like that, you know, I'm glad I'd never heard of it because it show, shows I have an unconscious bias and that can be a way that people are resisting when they might feel 
marginalized in the workplace. I think we've called it workplace burnout in the past. I mean, I, I, I think of the advice I've given hella entrepreneurs over the years, which is when you're getting ready to figure out how to incubate your own and stay with an incubator company, um, how do you bring that company 100% of your excellence, but make sure that 100% of your excellence is in 130% of you because you're going to need that other percent to put into your bucket. So I don't think I have the same language as maybe what that is now. That Again, my generational lens, that sounds almost like hopeless language and it makes me sad and angry and mad, but maybe I'm putting a stereotype on it that isn't deserving of it. Well, I wouldn't say millennials are the most, well, as a millennial, I'm not the most hopeful person. (laughs) So I can't fight you on that. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, the reason I bring this actually, May, do you have anything that you'd like to? You go first. Go first. (laughs) Okay. So, Noah, yes. I think it is like partial rebellion, partial just wanting to be healthy humans. Yeah. But I'm always curious to know, like, what would what would the world look like if if maybe Michael, your generation had more boundaries, had maybe started silent quitting years ago? You know, I I just that's why I asked, like, how does this land on you? And is there because sometimes I wonder and again, assumptions, because I have not had enough of these conversations across generations to either validate or. you know, not confirm that belief, but sometimes I wonder if a piece of this gatekeeping is almost like, well, you know, like I didn't have any boundaries. I was fine and uh, I'm still fine. So I think you'll be fine in 50 years too. But our generation millennials, or at least for me, we're working with this whole new skill set of emotional intelligence, of, of recognizing, naming, working with those things to balance our lives. Um, so I'm just curious to know if there's like a piece of like, eh, well, we didn't get that. We'll, we were fine. You'll be fine. And let's just keep the world turning like it turns. I, I think there is a lot of that. Maria. I think there's a lot of folks that said, well, I put my time in. Yeah. I worked my butt off and I, you know, I, I never took a sick day. I never, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I got awards for some, some of the greatest generation people are like, I never took a sick day. I worked till the day I die. It's like, that's the, the, like, the oh. genre of it. So I, I think about, you know, uh, lawyers joining a law firm and they they have to practically kill themselves working overnight to, you know, build up and do all the work for the partner lawyers to prove that they belong. And, you know, not a lot of people, not everybody's willing to pay that price. And there's this assumption that you're going to work, you know, whether it's 40, 50, 60 hours a week, because I had to. Um, and yeah, I was like, someday some of us wake up and saying, what what was I just up to? You know, it's like for some people, they love it and it's a career. I know a guy who uh, lived lives in the, in the north woods of Minnesota in the Boundary Waters where I used to guide outward bound trips with him. And he's, he says one day to me, he says, you know what the trouble is with the rat race? And I said, no. He's like, even if you win, you're still a rat. It's Ooh. like, so what? That's a little cruel, harsh. Like but that. you know, my <laughs> rat mask. What? What am I up to? What am I? You know, am I? Am I... <laughs> Shit's getting it's scary. Like, so I have to. I have to say, yeah. yeah if I've if I've worked so hard, yeah. do I automatically accept and assume that others are going to do that? And 
Some people, you know, do it to the degree of heart attacks or extreme health issues and stuff. So what is balance? And that's a good thing that to look at culturally around the world in Europe. They take more vacations. They take more parentally. They have more, um, you know, balance in some of those things. So I think taking a big picture uh, look at that is a worthy thing. And it's like all of a sudden with the great resignation, um, you know, there's a lot more power in employees to say, I demand that I have some balance or want to work from home more often or whatever. And, you know, there's been a lot of power in employers historically to say, well, here's the conditions if you want to play. You know, and we got to figure out what is sustainable. What's a what is a balance overall? Mm. Is that what's that like to hear that, Maria? Um, what is it like to hear that? I think it's a a relief mm-hmm. to hear you say because sometimes, Michael, I'll speak to you. I look at your schedule and I'm like, nope. <laughs> Don't uh-huh. want that in 30 years. Absolutely not. Um, so hearing you say that is almost like it almost makes me understand kind of this paradoxical dilemma that boomers might be in of like, I have to keep working so hard because I've always done it and yeah. I might be unhealthy and I might be suffering and I might be struggling with figuring out how to balance that. And that just trickles on to all of the people they manage and the people they manage, because that's how culture works. It is perpetuated yeah. in people. Um, so yeah. hearing you say that is both a relief and uh, almost like a revelation for me to kind of that. Yeah, I come from a, a, a generation that's always seeking balance. Um, we may be yeah. overpromising yeah. and overdelivering, but then we're silent quitting on the back end, you know, because we kind of figure out how to balance that out. I've never uh, had that kind of struggle in my mind. Well, or yeah. we're we're running the ERGs while we're at work, right? right. Yeah. You know, like that's how we're balancing it out. We're like, we're going to make this place better as long as we're here. <laughs> if we also, out, it'll be for the good. <laughs> yeah. You're also living in a time may where someday you're going to be worried, maybe, about whether your kid is safe at school because the school shootings and that stuff yeah. that's that's still continuing or as the weather gets hotter and hotter, what, yeah. what are our kids going to actually live through? Um, Is there any water that yeah. calls for, I think those tragic events call for what really matters. Um, you know, um, I, two things. One is that I want to just like call in this uh, intersectional bit that just even in this conversation um, that, with two people that identify as male and two people who identify as female or as women that we are, that one of the crossroads I find myself at is that um, the Kool-Aid I was sold is, is that I have to do everything. Mm -hmm. Um, My experience around work is that I have to do everything and it's less about productivity and worth Mm -hmm. and more about, if I don't do it, I've let my mother down and I've let my children down mm-hmm. and that the, the end of the world is imminent and I'm the generation that has to save it. Um, and that Kool-Aid, I think, is sending our generation, especially of women, into autoimmune diseases. Um, and mm-hmm. we're wondering why. Right. They're like we're burning adrenals at both ends right now. And it's because of this like constant worry and stress. But I also 
want to like the intersectional piece is that like, what are my male colleagues feeling? Um, and what does that pressure feel like? And what is a relationship around work? Because what I'm hearing is like, if you're, per, if you are driven to be born because you were born in the house of work, that your productivity is based is your worth. We're never getting out of here. You know, mm-hmm. like this, this wheel is continuing to turn, especially if we tell the millennials and the Gen Zers that it's up to us to save the earth. Um, mm-hmm. That's just like different Kool-Aid for the same machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, machines don't run on Kool-Aid, but whatever, you know what I'm saying? So I'm wondering yeah. sometimes as I'm like working out this, this stuff in for my own daughter, you know, of like, what do I want to, what I want to message to her is, am I just selling her different Kool-Aid? <laughs> like, have I just changed the flavor? And what am I actually going to say? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be your friend that on the boundary waters, you know, I, I want to be the one that's like, we don't do that anymore. That's mm-hmm. not cool. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I'm kind of still at a loss about that one. Yeah. Well, you make me think about our purpose statement as a company. We help leaders create partnerships and cultures where everyone thrives. And what does that really call for? And that calls for questioning what really does it mean to thrive mm-hmm. sustainably without uh, paying a price health-wise, emotionally-wise. Um, and I, it has me, I realize we're in our last 10 minutes or so. And um and I'm wondering what other experiences you've had, uh, the best experiences across generations that leaders who are listening to this might be able to consider for themselves as they struggle with their partnerships across generations. Hmm. I, I think for, let's see, I think for me, um, something Maria said earlier when I've been able to ask for what I need in a relationship and trust it, when I have felt that an older person has seen enough of what at least intrinsically to me feels like my humanity that I can trust some critique of my behavior as opposed to the other way around, which is so often I feel what has been the experience. Let me get a critique of my behavior without too much interest in my humanity. And maybe that's because I'm younger. Cause I've, like someone said earlier, I'm white, I'm male, I'm cis. So I'm sometimes I'm an insider regardless of my age, but certainly from a generational perspective, I'd say that. Um, and, and then, and, and Noah, what, what helps as a leader, what would I do to see more of your humanity? Um, gosh, that's, I th- curiosity yeah curiosity and like probably some boldness some calm yeah Mm -hmm. like some comfortability talking to me about what you see in me or the ways that you like you you're you you like the way i do everything from disrupt to create from uh build to critique and that 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 there's a well that 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 you appreciate that that energy that i might bring into the mix um i don't know that there's one way to do it it looks different it looks like Mm -hmm. trust i mean it looks like when you're a supervisor behaviorally trusting more and micromanaging less when you're um, yeah. uh, in a mentoring mode, it looks more as we always teach others. And as people have already said on this call, more of the sponsoring mode, here's what I did. Here's what I also know about my identity, what's going on for you and what questions do you have about how you're navigating that we can both learn from. So sponsoring as opposed to mentoring also feels good. And for me personally, you know, a lot the shit, sharing power has meant more permission to to um 
to take on autonomous work behaviors and also more transparency about pay equity and how do you grow in a pay scale and what resources are out there. I am showing up at work for that as part of that at the end of the day. So I I need that class level thing to be a lot more flatlined if I'm going to really um, have some trust too on certain levels, especially if we're doing mission-driven work like WMFDP or so many other companies do. Mm-hmm. The reason I left the nonprofit was because I saw how it pimped my parents and I saw how missions are used against good people to pimp behaviors and keep a pyramid of pay in place. Yeah. And I want to replicate that. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Bit of it. Yeah. May, Maria, closing thoughts each about that? Um, one of the ways that, well, two of the ways that it's ha- it's happened for me just like very mm. recently is um, I, the it, it feels like partnership to me when Mo repeats what I said and attributes it to me, even though it is so basic, um, not like what I've said, but that act. It takes mm-hmm. no currency on her part. It takes barely any time. And the message that it sends everybody in the room is, I respect what May just said. And mm-hmm. that gives me so much power and privilege because I'm borrowing hers. And I do the same for her when the tables are flipped, right? Like when we're talking with a group of millennials, it takes nothing from me to just say that, you know, I see it a little bit like an ATM card and mine just keeps getting filled up with certain communities. So I'm going to keep spending it, you know, for who it, who it's going to benefit. Um, and she does the same for me. Um, another piece is that in our, in Mo's firm, she just offered us a four day work week, mm-hmm. um, as a parent and as a millennial and as a, partner to an entrepreneur who I don't get to see that often because we're both working like wild to make our lives work. Having Friday off, um, like I get a little weepy about it right now. It feels like I get an $80,000 raise. Um, Mm -hmm. Seeing my humanity in that here's a day to rest and I Mm -hmm. will see you on Monday um, Mm -hmm. has felt like equity to me of that mm-hmm. I'm not getting punished because she's worked five days a week, maybe seven days a week for her entire career. So I should also, but instead offering me even more on the other side of like, mm-hmm. take a rest, take a break before you hurt yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, the data is real on the four day work week, aside from anything, you make more money, everybody's more productive. It saves the planet, whatever. But also I'm telling you as the employee that got it, it has made all the difference for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Beautiful example. Thanks, May. Michael, formal request for a four-day work week at WMFDP. That was a setup. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. What mm. I have what? go ahead, Maria. No, Sorry. go ahead, May. Well, you didn't really answer, so you go first. If there's time, I'll ask my question. Oh, it's okay. My, we can stay on two extra minutes. Does it ever surprise you, Michael and Noah, to have slipped into the generation that has the power to change the things? Do you ever look around and are like, oh, shoot, I'm the adult in the room? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, I mean, I even amongst the status and rank stuff amongst boomers themselves, 
you know, there's all kinds of intersectionality around personalities, driver, non-driver styles, and who has the power and who is, you know, deferring to who. So a lot of dimensions around that. I would say, I think on an individual level, like my definitely being in a marriage that demands me to behave and think equitably has yeah taking me out of some mature taking me into some maturity and critique of privilege i'm not sure every white man has had the opportunity to have so i, I feel that way on my individual level and i feel that way in a societal level as i noted earlier i have not had that professional experience although i don't doubt the millennials and people underneath me see me as that because of how i individually show up but i don't think i've had that in, I don't think I, I think I, I don't think that's been my professional experience as of yet, and it, and it may or may not be. I'm, I'm I think I might be okay with that as well. Hmm. What about you, Maria? Where are you at? I'm excited for the day you get past the baton, Noah. I will be more than happy to sit in space <laughs> behind you and help mm-hmm. with whatever you might need. And I think that that's something that uh, millennials are okay with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A narrative that I would like to squash is that we're not okay standing still. Um, we're not okay standing still if it doesn't benefit us, but I would love to live in a world where I can sit in stickiness, sit in spaces as long as I need to, as long as best serves me. That is in, in the partnerships that I've had cross-generationally, that has been what has best worked for me. And those have been the, the relationships that have best served me are the ones where a both younger and older have given me time to get to know me. Hmm. So that they understand what I'm good at, what I'm not. Um, and I'm, I'm able to just be myself. You know, I remember I had a, a boss that, so I was diagnosed with ADHD in the last six months. I'm 30 years old. I'll be 31 in January. Hmm. And the first person to ever mention that to me, that I might have ADHD and that might be why I think differently was Jim. Hmm. A supervisor of mine was the one that was able to kind of see me in a way that my own culture, my own family hadn't seen me. And it's benefited me significantly. Same supervisor that has also given me space to kind of be the best version of myself at work, be the worst version of myself at work, and has been really transparent with me about how to find some balance. Um, And that's what I ask all of my supervisors or anyone that I work with really specifically folks across generation is give me a chance. Just mm-hmm. talk to me for a second. I mean well. And when I don't do well, I'm open to the feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, just give me a shot. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that goes the other way around, too, because we don't always serve our elders in the best way that we could. Mm-hmm. We are also subject to bias. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll leave you with that. It's just get to know each other across whatever dimension of diversity it is. There's always, always so much light and so much wisdom that we overlook just because we're blind. We're blind to it. We don't see it. Um, and I don't have the right language for that. So I apologize for the lack of sensitivity there. But that's been my experience. Uh, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate um, the three of you taking time out. This is a fantastic conversation. Uh, right. Lots of good ideas. And I heard that last suggestion. We really slow down and connect and bring bring forth each other. See the humanity in each other. Really ask the questions about who has the power to change things, including yourself mm-hmm. and co-create a future that where we can all thrive. So thank mm-hmm. you for joining. Right on. Thank you. all. Bye y'all. 
Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.